there, and welcome to the Prickly Things Podcast, the show where we are open and honest about everyday life in hopes to empower, motivate, and inspire you. So listen close, because we all love a good story. Well, hello and welcome everyone uh, to the Prickly Things Podcast. This is your host, Sandra Camacho, and I'm so excited to be here on this DACA series today. I am sitting down with my guest, Liz Sandoval, and she's joining me all the way from Houston, Texas, the big H-town. Hold it down. Uh, Super excited to join you. Hi, Liz. How are you doing? Hi, Sandra. I am doing fantastic. As fantastic as you can be after a hard day's work. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. And uh, it's Thursday. We just talked about how we're excited for the weekend. I'm not sure about the weather going into the summer because, as you may know, it's like hot summer weather. And it doesn't start as other states would have it, you know, a little bit later, like June, July. For us, it's already getting hot. I'm in Texas too, and it's like already like up 80 degrees or higher. And then the humidity how do you handle the humidity <laughs> in Houston? Oh, we survive. <laughs> Um, actually, uh, a funny story, the house that I live in um, has an extra gap underneath the house so that air can flow and make it cooler in the hot weather in summer. Um, mm-hmm. So my family typically does not like to keep the air conditioning on uh, during the day. So <laughs> I have to fight them. And I it feels funny because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I pay most of these bills and I still can't turn on my air conditioning I have to toughen it out but that's how we are out here in Houston (laughs) yeah I mean sometimes you just gotta rough it out and and you need a personal fan even just walking through the streets I remember I lived in Houston (laughs) uh way back when I'm talking 2019 2020 pre-pandemic years and then the first time I ever visited I come from dry heat, so Arizona is really dry. And then I go and visit Houston for the first time, and I'm melting. And I'm the type of person (laughs) that I sweat, and I sweat a lot. And that time, it was not fun walking through downtown. You want to be a tourist and like, oh, look at all this. I was like, I want to go home. There is no way I can (laughs) get out here. And I'm smelly, and I'm, you know, it's just, it's sticky. You feel sticky everywhere. Now, you for sure are already used to this, right? Like you have to be after living there for so long. Yes, basically. And I've had the opportunity of moving to other cities, um, but I always just come back to swampy, good old Houston, Texas. I love it here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and you know, besides the weather, I mean, I think Houston has a lot of culture, a lot of uh, history and uh, fun times that I had in Houston. Uh, what makes it special for you? Mm -hmm. So for me, it has been home ever since I was eight years old. And I, besides my very immediate family, I, I've made my own family in a way in the city because of everybody that I've met at different stages in my life and how much each individual has meant to me. Um, And it's funny because you can't just put them all in an umbrella from like Elizabeth's friends. It, they are so diverse because you step out of um, out of your house here in Houston and you will meet somebody from a different country and from a whole different continent or also who have been native Texans for their entire lives. And you never know who you're gonna meet and who you're gonna bond with. And But I will also say, I also really like the food and that's something that everybody has started to identify that Houston is the prime place for food. And when we're saying food, enlighten me in what is your favorite, favorite Houstonian either dish or plate? What are we talking about here? Okay, I will have to say when I go out to eat at restaurants, I typically go for Japanese food. Uh, Typically takoyaki is my go to. Okay, well, well, we're definitely going to have to put that on the list of things to try. Um, I was thinking you were going to go for like the, the crawfish or something more oh. like <laughs> Houstonian, like barbecue or something more that I was thinking like you would only find in Houston. But I mean, Japanese places, I've been to 
Chinatown in Houston. Oh my God. It was so much fun. So many mm-hmm. places to get. Even the market. I love shopping at the market in Chinatown. And um, I found one time the matcha Kit Kats. Oh my goodness. Those are delicious. <laughs> and then sporadically one time I found Lay's, but it was cucumber flavor. Cucumber yes. flavor Lay's. And never in my life have I ever been able to find them again, except for that one time in Chinatown. But I'm telling you, you're right. The culture, the diversity, everything about Houston is special and it has been special for you. Now, as we're talking about, you know, growing up in Houston, uh, you mentioned you've been there since you were eight years old. And as we all know, this is the DACA series. So this is the time that we get to spend and talk about our DACA story, what DACA means for us, what it stands for us. So taking it back to what DACA is just to start and define it. How do you describe DACA to other people? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty complicated. You know, DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, It was an executive order from Obama back in 2012, 2013. And it basically changed the lives of many children who ended up in the United States um, undocumented and gave them the opportunity to make something of themselves with a work authorization and an ability to be safe and live their daily lives uh, in, originally it was three year terms, but now it is two year terms. Um, but for me, I was born in Monterrey, Nuevo Leon, and I just found myself in Houston with an expired visa. and. I don't tell that to a lot of people because I typically start crying at that point, but <laughs> that's that's basically what that means to me. A whole journey in a simple explanation of a program that has truly changed our lives. Um, I say so because I also have DACA. Uh, over 600,000 uh, people have DACA and even more are waiting in line to get into the DACA program. So I often feel as I do more interviews and meet more people, I often feel guilty in a way and sad for all the other people left without DACA that are eligible, that should have this, that it means so much for them. And yet the program is closed for those you know, first initial applications. Now, you and I and the 600 other thousand people can renew, and we have been able to renew for this program since 2012. I've gone through my fifth renewal. We're talking 10 years on DACA. Mm -hmm. That's a whole lifetime. I mean, half my lifetime at this point. But you know (laughs) what I mean? It's like, We've been here since we were kids, and you touched on that perfectly. Being undocumented, coming in, you know, there's a lot of perspectives on immigration, you know, coming and moving, trying to seek a better life. I'm sure my parents were doing that when they came in here. Your parents were probably looking to have a better life for you, for them. Um, and, And migrating was the only way for that to happen. Now, imagine how hard it is to leave your country, start somewhere new, and you never picture what that's going to look like down the road for your family, other than, oh, everything's going to be fine. But come to find out you're a little kid and you grew up in a a country that doesn't accept you and has specific limitations on what you can do when you finally have to grow up and you have to have a job and you have to go to school or, you know, live life. How do you live life undocumented when you've been here since you were a kid, how do you begin to accept this for yourself? Because at eight years old, did you realize that change meant all of a sudden I may not have as many opportunities down the road? Um, I guess at eight years old, I wasn't, it didn't click in my head. And this is why I typically say, you know that saying where people say, oh, you peaked in high school and you never grew out of that high school mentality. For me, I peaked in middle school way when I was a kid. I believed I could do anything. I did karate. I did art. I did music. I did um, 
I was I even went to summer school and my teachers would say, Elizabeth, why are you here? You've got perfect score in your exams. Uh, you don't need to be here. And I said, I just want to keep being the best person I can be. And come to find out in high school, that's when reality hit. You can't just be anything you want to be. Even if you have all the skills and all the abilities and all the knowledge and all these certifications, um, there will always be that limit of you are not from here, you're not welcome. Um, and definitely has reshaped my entire perspective um, from when I was a bright little kid to when I became an angsty little teenager that, you know, as you mentioned, 10 years have gone by and I felt I had to reinvent myself so many times uh, throughout like throughout having DACA, but also before having DACA as well. And just navigating the awakening of knowing you're undocumented. Because like you said, when you're eight years old, that's what, third grade, fourth grade, you're like a little kid. Like you said, the sky is the limit. And they teach you from early on. I am like at this point that I'm realizing all the trauma that we've gone through. I'm thinking from the beginning from the time I set foot in an American school, they they tell you education is key and you have to be a good student, get good grades. What do you want to be? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to be, you know, they have a huge weight on education that from the moment that you step into school, for me, I knew that I had to go to college. I didn't know what it would take to go to college. I just knew I had to go to college so I can get a good job and have a good career. But then at eight years old, it's like, oh yeah, I can be a doctor. I can be a nurse. I could be anything. I can be an astronaut. And you have your dreams. And then the reality hits, like you said, down the road. When was that moment for you? I think it was around uh, when I was 16, 17 years old. So sometime in sophomore year, junior year, um, my my dad was kind of pushing me towards Liz, you're a teenager now, you don't have a part-time job, you probably should have one. And me as an angsty teenager was basically saying, no, dad, I'm a great student. I don't need to work part-time. But then there was always that danger in the back of my mind of where do I even find a part-time job? And that's when I started to realize all these other opportunities that I was saying no to because I was undocumented, which was traveling abroad to, uh, I was in a French class and there was an opportunity of traveling abroad to uh, different European countries over the spring break. And then there were, uh, there was an internship during high school as well that opened up and it was based out of Germany or something and I couldn't do it. Um, I actually went to an art school in high school because I had the mentality of, I have out of all the things that I tried in middle school, the one thing that I loved the most is that I was an artist and I wanted to be an artist. And I went to the high school of the performing and visual arts, um, which I take a lot of pride on because it is a, you would think that an art school would be simple to get through, but this particular art school is a whole nother level. My entire graduation class was very competitive. I admire them a lot because they are a very smart bunch, but it was tough graduating. I ended up graduating in the second quartile that year. Uh, and I didn't feel my best because I was applying to all these scholarships I couldn't get because of my status. I felt alone. It was an art school. So um, Hispanics and Asians were in the great minority in school because not a lot of people from our culture support us to study arts. They are typically like, you need to be a doctor, you need to be an engineer, you need to be in STEM. Uh, you can't be wasting your time in art. So as you can imagine, we were a minority of a minority. So I felt extremely alone uh, in high school. Um, I felt that I couldn't be as open about it. Um, I had to keep it to myself. And it looked like everybody was going to the next big thing in their life. And I was being left behind. But I will say at around the same time was when DACA was introduced and that's when I saw the opportunity of my life being able to change and me being able to finally catch up to my classmates. So at the same time that you're trying to get ahead because you're going to art school and you're trying to like again empower yourself with 
look at all the things that I can do you're also being left behind because you can't take as many opportunities as everybody else and we know those opportunities are like traveling abroad once you're in the states you can't leave and if you leave I mean you can you can't come back I mean it doesn't work like that as other people can just take their passport and go away and come back I mean I envy so much my co-workers that take a quick trip to the Bahamas or even just to Canada and they come back and I'm like I want to do that so bad but you can't you can't just take a trip and come back out of the country um mm -hmm. and then we're talking about educational opportunities too once we start looking into colleges once we start getting into scholarships once we start getting into financial institutions um it's it's a harder process sometimes even impossible for undocumented people um And how do you even explain that to your classmates, right? That have been in the same, you know, you're neck to neck with them, but then you're also at a disadvantage because you don't have the qualifications that other people have. And that's just citizenship. That is it. You may be as skilled or even more skilled or whatever it is. It's just not having been born in this country that makes us different. So that I can already imagine is really hard on anyone how did you navigate that not being able to talk to friends or being fully open about it you mentioned mm -hmm. DACA came up how was the application process for the first time back then yeah so at first we were afraid of uh, even thinking about applying to DACA because it felt that you were writing a big red x on your back Uh, mm -hmm. You were basically telling the government, hey, I'm here undocumented. And, and this is where kid. I live. I know. <laughs> this is where I live. So it was frightening. But um, I will say my father was the one who helped me get through it all because he looked at me. He said, Elizabeth, you are dreaming too big right now. You want to be an artist. You want to go to college to be an artist. You don't need to be to go to college to be an artist. You need to go to college to be an engineer. I know you better than you know yourself. And right now you're just being an angsty teenager, giving me a hard time. So just try engineering and you're going to try to apply to DACA and everything's going to work out. I cannot guarantee it, but I have a feeling that everything's going to work out. And so he was the strength that I needed to face the application, first time application process uh, for DACA and also the first pivot, the big pivot on my life um, of changing my mindset of being in an art career to being in an engineering career. And that is a big transition because we're talking about arts and now I know nothing about either arts or engineering, but I can already imagine engineering being so hard and difficult <laughs> and my mind would explode at I had a lot of friends that did engineering. And so just even looking at whatever they were doing while I was doing my work, I was like mind, you know, blown of how much they have to go through. But you decided that and you were dedicated to, if I'm going to do this, this is the only path, right? Your parents are telling you, this is how it's going to be. You love art, but you have to be realistic of this is an opportunity, you're going to get DACA. DACA is going to allow you a social security number. It's going to allow you a driver's license and a temporary work permit, which again, keyword on temporary because we have to renew every two years. But then it gave you some sort of like window to get to where you needed to be. Now we're talking about going to college. How was that process for you? from the start of realizing I'm undocumented, maybe I have DACA by now. When did you actually start applying for college and how did DACA play a role in that? Mm -hmm. So I started applying to scholarships and to college around the same time as I was applying to DACA. They both kind of happened at around the same timeline. So you were busy. Every, <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. And all the, in art school or in this particular art school, you get portfolio days where the biggest art schools in the United States come to see your portfolio and get to give you like tips. And if they really like your art, they give you a scholarship. So 
I was fortunate enough to get a $14,000 scholarship, but it was to a $45,000 tuition every year school in Tennessee. And that was not going to be helpful. <laughs> um, so that's when I started to realize, okay, okay, this is, I'm going about this all wrong. So I, after I was able to achieve um, my application for DACA, I got my work authorization card. And the very next day I ran to two blocks down from my house, there's a grocery store. And I, I right away applied to a cashier's job. Um, the manager at the time, Conchis, she was fantastic. She told me, you, you're gonna need to apply to a social security number first and then come back and then I'll give you the job. And I said, great. So I went, came back same day, got started. And it's funny because I was so busy. <laughs> I was going through the transition of applying to colleges uh, but then also realizing I can't go to, no, to an art college. I need to look into engineering and look into economical options near me. So, and all, by the same time, I have DACA now. I can start working. So I was starting my first job as a cashier. So I had so many things to juggle in my head. But I finally applied to the University of Houston for mechanical engineering. And I didn't get in because I was... 40 points under what they were requiring for their critical reading SAT score, like so specific. I was okay with everything else, but I wasn't okay with that. In hindsight, it was the best thing they could have done to me because by not getting into the engineering school right away, it made me reflect and say, okay, university right off the bat is gonna be $8,000 a year. If I go to community college, I will take my basic classes for a cheaper amount and then I can get a trial number two, start looking for scholarships again, start getting up to speed again. So I ended up taking a semester off right after graduating high school and just really preparing myself into going to community college uh, and starting my engineering education. So you went a different route than what most of us make it out to be, right? Like you graduated from high school and a lot of people think, okay, immediately college and university. And we're talking about a four-year school. Um, and that's usually what's mostly appealing or like people are usually a go-to for a university. And we're talking about the big college experience and the dorm life and being out with friends. And, you know, it's, it's something that I don't think that was what it was for me, for me, it was like the hustle is real in college. And it was work, school, work, get good grades and graduate, like no time for fun. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember those days, but as opposed to what that traditional college experience is for some people, you took a step back and said, it's going to be expensive. It's going to take a lot of time. I have a job now, maybe save some money by going to community college. At a certain point, was there any um, and I, I would say this for myself because community college was also my first option before going into a four-year university, but it made me feel some type of way. Like I kind mm -hmm. of felt, um, that I didn't succeed in a way because I ended up having to go to a community college if that was my option. Did it ever make you feel smaller in a way just because oh. it also tied into your status? Completely especially coming from a very, 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 very smart graduation class in high school. Um, nobody, very little bit of, of the students in that school ended up going to community college, almost nobody. And I felt like a total failure, but I, the only thing that kept me going was the idea that now I have DACA and uh, unlike my classmates, I might not have the ability to work um, tomorrow or whenever my work authorization expires. So I'm going to work today and I'm going to do as much as I can with my 24 hours every day to number one, work to save money and make money and you know put bread on the table uh, and support my parents. And number two is go to college and start this career of engineering on but also not graduate with that, <laughs> like many of my classmates 
uh, looked like they were going to end up being uh, four years down the road. I know. And I, you don't think about that. You don't think about that when you're 18, how much it, you know, you're going to spend out of pocket for college or you see big numbers. And to this day, honestly, I can't relate to big numbers of money. You know, like I can't, my mind doesn't wrap around $80,000. Like, I don't know what that means, you know, and in some shape or form, I think being undocumented and being sometimes, I mean, I was poor. Um, I didn't know how easy it was to get into debt and how easy it is to get into debt while you're in college. And thankfully, I didn't have to go through a situation of, of having to get student loans or financial loans that, you know, make you go into debt. Thankfully, I think I would say most of us are pretty smart with our money because <laughs> we're worried about everything that we're just still tight on it. Um, so again, I, I can definitely think about how you're already thinking that way uh, just out of high school. Uh, but going into engineering, I, I really want to ask why engineering? Why was this the path your parents chose for you? Why was this the only option as you're talking about it? It feels like this was the only thing that you could focus on at school. Why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my father was an engineer in Mexico and okay. that's where he got the idea. Um, he being an, my dad came from complete poverty. Um, I mean, like he was one of many, many siblings and through his education and choosing engineering, he was able to open a pathway of um, going all around Mexico, servicing different uh, machines. And that gave us a pretty good life in Mexico. And that's what opened his eyes. And, you know, you're very smart, Elizabeth. I know you. And you're going to be a great engineer because I know what it takes to be a great engineer. You are going to be great. Um, and it was also the trust in him because for me, I'm I'm an only child. So I have a very close relationship with both of my parents. That's why I, I gave it a shot. I was like, okay, I, I get that you're saying this from like a place of love. But if I hate it, it's on you and I'm going to change it and I'm going to change my major. But I, when I started my education in mechanical engineering, I really liked it. It's not just the math and science, it's the creative way of coming up with problem solving. Um, how do you creatively make a solution to a problem that you've never seen before? And that's after my first couple of semesters in community college, I realized, okay, all right. Yeah, dad, you were right. I should have listened to you. I was just being an angsty teenager and I like mechanical engineering after all. <laughs> I mean, it takes a while to find it out for yourself, right? And sometimes what our parents say, I mean, my mom wanted me to be a nurse. My mom wanted me to be so many things, but it took myself to figure out what I wanted to be, you know, and your parents are always going to want something big for you, but it's a lot of, a lot of things that you got to do to like, realize how to get there and is it really meant for you so I'm glad that it did work out I mean obviously yes your parents know you best and want the best for you and I'm glad that they really pushed you to uh, be in this career path now I, I gotta say I believe it's not as easy as you're making it seem to be you know just like <laughs> oh, okay yeah I got it uh, but at least you know finding that path and sometimes for us you know undocumented first generation students finding a major is so hard because you have the pressure of your parents telling you, I need you to do something good out of this, right? If you're, like you said, if you're going to go to college, spend all this money and spend all this time, make it worth it. And as opposed to you that you wanted to do art, a lot of our parents are saying, you're my saving grace. You're my retirement plan. I need you mm -hmm. to get it together and make money. Um, so they're really pushing us into, um, careers that oftentimes are not what we wanted. Um, I know that from other people that I've had on the show, uh, just the social pressure of a career path and being a first generation college student that you've never had anybody guide you through what it's like to be in college. How does it work? How does financial aid work? How does scholarship work? All of these things are so hard to navigate. How did you manage to 
get around even just after community college or in between community college? Yeah, so actually before I jump into that question, I just want to also offer like a little five cents as well. Um, well, my parents never pressured me into, you know, you're, you're our lifeline, but I kind of pressured myself. <laughs> like I knew without them having to tell me, I knew that they are directly dependent on me and my success. Uh, but anyhow, whenever it came time to actually navigate through college, that's where it gets tough because towards the end of community college, it was 2017, 2017, it's like in our blood right now in our PTSD, <laughs> it is yeah. anxiety. So I was about to graduate and um, at the same time, my dad was in a car accident. So on the freeway, there was a seven vehicle collision and my dad happened to be in one of the cars. And so they uh, drove him in an ambulance to Memorial Hermann Hospital. And in there, the doctors found that he had a mass in his kidney. And they said, we don't know if it's cancerous. We've already ran tests, um, but you might want to get it checked out every so often just to make sure. Uh, we could also just extract it. But my, my dad was like, I don't want you to do surgery on me. I'm not young anymore. Um, and I have this memory in as if it was yesterday, we were walking out of the uh, doctor's office where they had just told us those results. And on the TV, it was Trump saying that he wanted to rescind the program. And so I was, I was on my last semester. I knew that this was the last semester that I had to, to, to finish for my associate of science degree. And so I said, okay, well, with this associate's degree, at least it's something, you know, my dad means the world to me because my family has always been una pata de este lado y la otra de allá. So like one foot on this side of the border, one foot in Mexico, you know, as, as soon as things get hard, we're not afraid to just say, uh, F it, as long as we stick together. If my dad can get better treatment in Mexico, we'll all move there. Um, and at the time, I didn't know anybody either who was undocumented or documented or a dreamer in my personal life. Um, and so I was getting ready to get my associate of science degree and apply to the four-year college to transfer there and continue uh, to get my bachelor's degree. But I just, I looked at my dad and I said, I can't just leave him hanging. So I actually applied to a Mexican university online because I was thinking I'm going to be uh, whatever engineer I can be in Mexico with my associate's degree like this is it like Trump doesn't want us here anymore he's gonna get rid of the program what's how can I lower the impact but then the same day that I was working away on my application to that Mexican college which by the way it was like a two-week application it was not easy at all I went downstairs and I bumped into a friend of mine and Christian he went to the same community college as me we worked at the college together and uh, he asked me, hey, Elizabeth, how are you? How are you today? And I, I told him the truth. I told him I am overwhelmed. I am like crying inside because I'm a DACA recipient and all of these things are going wrong. And he looked at me and he said, Elizabeth, but you're a DACA recipient? And he said, I'm a DACA recipient too. And that was the first friend that I had uh, who is a DACA recipient. And he told me about dream.us scholarship and this was where my life changed because he told me with this scholarship you can get a full ride to the university of houston and i told him well what if they rescind daca like what then there's no future for us here and he said liz don't we are so strong like you are at a privileged position right now having daca being in this wonderful city there is this scholarship that's a great opportunity. You're so smart. You have to see this through. You can't just give up. And I, I went upstairs and I applied to that, to the dream.us scholarship. And I said, okay, Jesus, take the wheel. If you <laughs> want it to be so, um, and I get the scholarship, I will continue applying to the university of Houston to be a mechanical engineer. And 
as soon as I got that acceptance letter from the scholarship, I said, okay, dad, I love you so much, but please just hang in there because we're going to keep going with this dream. I am taking time to like process this and I know that you had <laughs> mentioned you had tissues around you and girl, I wish I had some here because all of that little story is just so powerful and thank you for sharing that because you you said a lot in those words and what that means I'm pretty sure so much I would think pain um hard work sleepless nights anxiety a lot of other emotions went through that experience so much that you are just able to tell me this is what it was and this is where I am now but going through that I'm sure wasn't easy first of all family having your parents or your dad go through this accident finding out this medical uh you know potential I mean something that's going to hurt him he can easily I mean we're talking about die it's it's an illness. It's bad, right? Nobody wants to be sick and nobody wants to have family be sick. That already puts you on edge. You're the only child that I'm, I'm already like, oh my gosh, it's the worst case scenario. On top of that, it's 2017. Mind you, after the fact of 2016, Trump being elected, that was already putting all of us on edge. 2017, resending DACA, was the worst thing that could have happened for us because I remember exactly feeling the way that you are describing. My life is over. My potential here in America is over. Everything that I, and we're mid, in our midway in college. And am I even going to be able to get a job when I graduate? Am I going to be deported? Is this even worth it? Right? Like we're talking about a dream that somebody else has a power to crush with words with an order with putting this program on the spotlight saying I don't agree with this I don't like this we're going to take it away and I remember feeling that of we're going back to failure what am I going to do now and nothing has happened yet right but in our mind it's like oh my god I'm freaking out it's like fight or flight and I think the easiest thing for a lot of us was just like okay let's go back home but not really, not really, because I still, even to this day, things get hard, but I can't wrap my head around going back to Mexico. And it's so, it pains me sometimes because I'm like, why? Why is it so hard for me to go back? And I'm sure there's a lot of things to uncover in that, but for you, you were ready. I mean, you were applying for for colleges in Mexico, you're like, girl, bye. It's powerful because again, a lot of us are so stuck with our dream of I am not going back. And it might be the situation that we've had, you know, previously in Mexico for some of us, maybe you had good childhood, you know, it good life, it wasn't that bad. But a lot of us grew up really poor. Mexico was just not it and coming to the United States gave us a glimpse of an opportunity to do better and knowing that we have to go back to a place that we don't know that you know we may have family that we haven't talked to in years we don't even have a home in Mexico so we would be starting over from scratch because we've lived here for so long it scares me but you were decided to go back and ready with the school in mind an application in hand and this was for your family. And that was, I mean, that was so sweet of you to make that decision, you know, for your family, because you were ready. But then, first of all, being open about being undocumented and having DACA, how did that make you feel to finally say that to somebody else? Because before that, you said you had not really been able to open up, but you were just like, I'm done saying I'm okay. That's usually a response. How are you? I'm okay. I'm good. You know, you're just hiding over everything that's really happening. How did it make you feel to actually open up and say those words? I am on DACA. Mm -hmm. I will say it felt like a relief because that was the moment when I didn't feel alone anymore. I felt that 
I wasn't the only DACA recipient and I knew that there were 700,000 of us out there. At the time, maybe it was more like 900,000, but I had never met a single one. And it was through being open and honest with Christian. And when he answered like in a positive way, um, I realized maybe telling some people that I have DACA might open the path of being able to find others who are in my same situation. Because if I was afraid of being honest and open and honest about being DACA, others are probably afraid too. And so when I won the Dream.us scholarship, we had to go through an orientation right before school started. And I was sitting in the same room as like 40, 50 other students in Houston that were also DACA recipients. And that's when I realized um, our community is so much bigger than I thought. And um, now that I've been a little bit more open and outspoken about uh, you know, what I'm going through and what I have come to realize so many years into having DACA and since 2017 until now that I've been a little bit more open, it has been that at every other stage of my life before having that conversation with Christian, I've met different DACA recipients, but I never knew because we were both so quiet and we didn't tell each other our lives. And now that I get to see them as adults, I'm like, but you were sitting right next to me and we were only speaking English and we could have been speaking Spanish this whole time. <laughs> it's a big world out there, but then you realize how small it could be when you're actually truthfully yourself and open, like you said, and honest about your situation. And that goes for many things, not just being on DACA or not being on DACA. I mean, people live life and we all go through different challenges, different stories that hit home to many of us, right? So what you said about opening up to somebody and having them open up to you, like, you're DACA, no way, I'm DACA, you know, like, I can imagine <laughs> that point now, and I'm like, everybody has had that moment in our life when we realize, like, oh, wait, you're DACA too, you know, and it makes <laughs> us feel like, I don't know, out of this world, like, we're finally meeting somebody, like, our, our soulmate, you know, somebody that we've been looking <laughs> for this long, like, where have you been my whole life? I remember feeling that way, and just like you said, in going into college, university, uh, this scholarship that we're talking about, the Dream That You is scholarship, I've mentioned it before on the podcast. Um, I have a great relationship and I will always advertise this as a resource for undocumented students, whether you have DACA or not. Um, this scholarship doesn't even like begin to provide, or let me rephrase, this scholarship doesn't just provide money it provides a network, it provides community, it provides resources beyond going to school. And I remember having that feeling of other people are in the same situation as me. We're starting school together from the first time. Actually, when I went to my university out of state, there was somebody from Arizona also that left Arizona to go to Texas. And he's been a great friend of mine since then and it's just like oh my god you're from Arizona we're both leaving Arizona to go to Texas leaving our home moving out of our parents house it was a huge transition and being able to share that with him was life-changing right because all of a sudden I didn't have to do it alone somebody else was with me and that was like a bonding experience right you get to do this with so many other people and talk about timing the timing of your life, getting to meet this person, <laughs> having this person tell you about the scholarship when you're halfway through an application for Mexico and a Mexican university. But then here's this opportunity, the dream that you're the dream that you have scholarship, it gives you a full ride, whether you are fresh out of high school or in your case, fresh out of community college, you can transfer into a four-year university and finish your degree there. And that is just, again, a life-changing experience because now you have money that you don't have to worry about being in debt or having to take out, you know, loans for school. Mm -hmm. Now you have the financial freedom to actually go to college, have the college experience, 
the University of Houston. I've heard so many great things about it. I've got it a chance. You guys are cougars. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I got a chance to tour it because I was doing a grad program and I got a chance to tour it and do all the, you know, fun stuff there. So it's a really good school and you got a chance to go through it, finish your degree. I'm assuming it's a bachelor's. Yes, it would be. It has a long name, just like my name, uh, the Bachelor of Science of Mechanical Engineering with a minor in mathematics. I'm so proud of it. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. And at this point, have you graduated? Have you already, you know, uh, finished your degree or are you still working through it? Yeah, so I started right after community college. I took a semester off again just to uh, recuperate and make sure that I got started with the best tools under my belt. Um, And I ended up going through the program uh, while working part-time, while taking full-time load classes. uh, And I got graduated in May of 2021. So at this point, it has been exactly two years, which is insane to think about because it feels like it was just yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, girl, it's going to go by fast. I've graduated. I graduated five years ago and I'm like, oh, my God, how is it possible that it was five years? Like, I I don't know where the time goes, but it, it goes by faster after college, let me tell you. And once you're an adult. Well, not that you're not an adult now, but you know, you know what I mean? Once you get into like (laughs) real life stuff out of college, it's like, oh man, I wish I could go back to those good old days, but you know, it only gets better. um, I can tell you from experience, but it doesn't really get better with the DACA program, not all the way Mm -hmm. through as we want it to be. And that brings us to the conversation of today of you've been able to achieve all of these things under DACA. You've been able to One, be open and honest about who you truly are in all sense of, I'm here. I feel like I've grown up here my whole life. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of us share that feeling of, I feel as American as the next person. I Mm -hmm. feel like I belong here. I feel like this is my home. Uh, This is all I ever known. I speak English. But yet the, the sad reality is that our status is still only temporary. And the way mm-hmm. the DACA program is looking now, it's not looking very good, especially for us here in Texas. I mean, everybody else too, but specifically this judge in Texas trying to end this program. So much of it is happening right now. Um, actually, I think they just released a statement that DACA will be in the courts again in June, I think June 2nd, um, to be reviewed by Texas Judge Hannon, I think that's his name. Um, How do you feel about all this? Oh, I'm all over the place. Because last time that we were talking about DACA being challenged, it was up until the Supreme Court uh, during COVID times. And at that point, it was the second big scare from 2017 to now Supreme Court time. I thought we were going to lose DACA. And the moment that they released the ruling that the Supreme Court didn't quite get rid of DACA, but also didn't say that it was legal, it was still a breath of fresh air. I I finally thought we were done with the court system. I went outside, found my family, and gave them a big hug. We all started crying. And (laughs) they started crying because I started crying. And I thought we were, that was it. That was the end of our woes and DACA would continue. But now, um, not too long ago, we went through this whole court circuit where it was heard here in Houston and then it went to Louisiana to be heard and then it came back to Houston. And at each of those times, we've been talking about me being a bit more um, open and honest, but being completely open and honest, I'm also not the most courageous person. And Now that I've been able to have a bit more of a community with everybody who is in the the, under the scholarship, um, alumni network, um, friends, family, now that I feel that I can finally stand up and say, oh, I'm an adult, I can actually go and um, be active in the community and 
go outside of the courtroom and just put up a big poster and say like, we're here to say, I believe in us. I kid you not, every single time that it, the something uh, with the local organizations has been organized at the courthouse to go and demonstrate in front of there, I have gotten sick just worrying like, should I go? Should I not go? Because going means supporting and actually feeling like I'm doing something for us. But then if I go, I'll put myself in danger and I'm the only lifeline my family has. And I don't want to just come out of the shadows. And it's great to be honest, but I'm also afraid of being honest to the wrong people. And <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten COVID twice just out of worry and anxiety uh, leading up to each court hearing. So now that I hear that the next court hearing is on June 2nd, I am keeping in mind, like, if I need to do like a, uh, I need pay time off uh, from work because I'm going to be sick, I'm probably going to be sick that day. Yeah, <laughs> just from personal experience. That's crazy that you're actually physically sick, right? Like the anxiety is that real. And a lot of us just say, oh, it's anxious. Dude, I cry. I cry. I go into a mental state of like, you know, if you were a baby where you just want to hide and like wrap yourself around in like the baby position, that's my go-to. And I just feel like crying. I feel defeated. I feel like I'm powerless. And I feel like a lot of us have those same feelings and we're not talking about it as much. Um, you in your situation, you're telling me that you get physically sick. And I can, I can understand that how hard it is to just even think about what this means for us. Having somebody else have power over our lives, have the power to say it's over. You can't work anymore. You can't be here anymore. You have to go back to where you came from and start all over. Like, how is it possible that they have so much power over us? And it's so scary, like you said, even just going out into the court and being outside and wanting to hold the sign. I've been wanting to do that too, but at the same time, it's a big risk. It's a big, um, the anxiety is still there. It doesn't go away because then at that point, you're putting yourself in the front of it all and it will make a difference, I guess, in a way of taking that power back. I think that's how I see it. I feel like if I were to go out there and do something, it's it's sharing my story. It is exactly what we're doing now, talking about these these things and and how it works for us and how we process these experiences because oftentimes this is why other people get to have power over us because we're not being loud enough. And even if we're not standing outside of the court, we're here sharing our story telling people this is what DACA is this is what it means to me this is how it affected my life and why I need this to stay a program not only to stay but make it better give us our citizenship give us our green cards give us something more than this just in between status right because it's so sad every time we come to a renewal I don't know if you relate to this but I I probably get sick every two years, girl. If you're talking about being <laughs> physically sick, I am mentally, physically, all of it. It's just, again, I go into that mentality of like fight or flight where I'm like, okay, either I'm going to buckle down and get through this and I'm going to get through this renewal and it's going to be okay. Or I'm just literally going to like, I don't know, I have to do something. So every two years we are in this situation, but now even more, consistently now the DACA program is just in limbo we don't know what's going to happen we're hoping and praying that it stays and that again we're asking for more but at the very least just keep it and open it up for people that do deserve to be in the program um other than being anxious about it and you know already knowing that you're probably going to be sick what are you doing to keep yourself from going to that dark place as we're approaching everything that's going to come with this court ruling. Mm -hmm. So I am taking the steps that my therapist suggested back when we were in the same 
situation uh, when it was going to, up to the Supreme Court a few years ago, and that is that control what you can control, but what you cannot control, just let it go and just take care of your now and the rest will follow after. But it's, it's easier said than done. <laughs> um, I am thinking of all that I could do in the next two years. So I, the moment that I renewed my work authorization, I figured out, okay, I have two years. How should I spend them? What should I do? Like how much money should I save? Uh, should I buy a house? Should I um, live every day? Like it's my last, should I travel more? And even to today, it's just been a few months since I did my last renewal and I still don't have the right answers. And that, that scares me. Like, um, I have a boyfriend and he's wonderful. And every time that I tell him about how much anxiety I have, I feel like I'm a broken record <laughs> because I tell him, what if I did this? And what if I did that? And my family too, they are also in the same boat of what if we did this or that? And, oh, it's a lot. I've been thinking I could buy a house and I could rent it out if I end up not being in the United States, or I could start a business and maybe it could be a remote business that even if I leave the United States, I could still operate it and earn US dollars. Or like right now, I work at a global tech company that has headquarters in basically every country in the world. So I'm trying to leave as much as a good impression as I can on the leadership to kind of, you know, basically say, hey, if Send I'm not in there. the US, yeah, if I'm not in the US anymore, can you give me a job somewhere else? Um, I really love the work, the company I work for right now, but uh, it's just, I, I feel like every day I'm coming up with a new idea, like uh, as if I was some entrepreneur coming up with all these business ideas for me, it's like all these plan A, plan B, all the way to plan C, and Exit then I come plans. back. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but those are good ones. I mean, the reality is, again, we have to reinvent ourselves. And you said it before, what do we do now? How do we use what we have? And now you have the skill set because you're talking about a job before we were worried. Are we ever going to be able to work? Am I, if I graduate school, am I going to have the skills that I need to survive? And the good thing about having an education and no matter if we're undocumented or not, no one's going to take that away from us. So you can go be an engineer in Mexico. You can go be an engineer in Canada. You can literally, it's now for real, it is the sky's the limit. And whether we get to work here in the United States or work anywhere else, the matter of fact is you have a degree, you have something to stand on. And I think that's something that is very valuable. Um, just our education, our experience, our work experience in itself. Uh, so that's awesome that you have that to rely on. And I mean, like you said, controlling what you can and letting go of everything else. I've had to learn that for myself because the anxiety, the panic attacks, the crying spells that occur in the next upcoming weeks are just my way of coping with how I react to this. And sometimes I try to shut down social media. Sometimes I try to be like, like what's going on? <laughs> what do I need to know? The highlights, but it's hard. It's hard. Um, I heard the last court hearing and having people talk about documented or documented people like they group us in this category and they talk about us like they know us and they don't and it's so sad again that they have this power but I'm not letting it take over me I am putting it aside I'm going to wait to hear the decision and then we'll like you said we'll reassess and see what we do from there. But we do have options um, and hoping for the best again. I don't know if you saw, but people are saying that they're asking the judge if he's going to end DACA, just end it for people in Texas. Just end it for Texas. And I was like, no, that doesn't work no. for me. That does not work for me. <laughs> you know, like, no. that's also something that they're saying, like, don't end DACA for everybody. Just, you know, if you have to end it, just do it for Texas. And I was like, great. It, it's always Texas, right? Um, 
but I'm saying there's a lot of things that can come out of this and I'm sure that you and I are going to be staying tuned I'm one that I do like to know what's going on there's other people mm-hmm. I've met other DACA recipients that have no idea they're like in, they, you know they're literally under a rock and they have no idea what's going on I mean I remember talking to a friend about hey have you tried the new application process you know like online they're like what you can renew online and I was like where have you been like yes and <laughs> Again, it, it just, whatever works for us. And some people are able to tune it out completely and, and live free from all this anxiety and, and stress and trauma. But I like to just stay in the know. Um, but as we're hearing about more information on the DACA program, as we're staying hopeful, as we're trying to do our best to take care of ourselves and our mental health, what is the best advice you can give someone out there that's listening to this episode that is just like you, uh, feeling sometimes hopeful, sometimes feeling defeated. Sometimes they have to reinvent themselves and try to figure out what's their best way to move forward. How do you tell somebody, a friend, that everything will be okay? So I would say, you know, overall, the DACA program has been standing for 10 years. And 10 years ago, I felt powerless, alone, with nobody who could relate to me and who could tell me what the next step should be. And after these 10 years with DACA, we have a community. We have ways of reaching out to one another. Some of us have experiences, have been in the shoes that others uh, want to be in and are aspiring to be in. There's some students that are still going through college right now, trying to be engineers, uh, who I've met as DACA or undocumented. And all I can say is, you know, just keep going at it. At the end of the day, as long as we have these skills that we possess and the knowledge that we possess, nobody can take that away from us. We have to be able to control our anxiety in a way that we can continue fighting every day. Um, stronger than the last. And even though we don't have a pathway to citizenship at this moment, we have a pathway to having a community that might not be like a person right next door. It might be a person from another state who knows exactly where we came from uh, and has experienced the same feelings as us. But at the same time, you know, whatever happens with DACA, we're going to figure it out. We figured it out when we were kids. We had the strength to apply to DACA and make the best versions of ourselves up until today. I have confidence that we can continue to do that going forward. And at least personally now for me, I don't feel as powerless as I felt when I was eight years old. Back then I had no control over anything. And now even though we don't have control over the court system and these individuals attacking the program and us, at least we have control over ourselves and the energy that we give to each other. So just reach out to somebody who is either documented or undocumented. We're stronger together and we have a lot of knowledge that we can share with each other from life experiences. So de una manera o de otra, even if we don't have the answer to things, we'll make them up as we go and keep moving forward. And I couldn't have said that better myself. And I think it's beautiful how we can come together during the hard times, but also, you know, be with each other during the good times too. I mean, on TikTok, I've seen so much community build from people sharing their DACA story on a, you know, 30 second video and people commenting like, you're DACA, I'm DACA too. And this is how it's been for me. And like you said, being able to find community in any place that you can, whether it's at church, whether it's at school, whether it's online on social media, whether it's through this podcast that you feel yourself related to something we talked about. It's not the same for all of us, but at least something will be familiar. And we've shared a lot of commonalities, right? Um, Like you said, a lot of people have walked the same walk that we have. And the fact that we're having conversations now and being open about what that means to us, I'm sure other people listening will be able to relate and feel like they're in the room with us talking. And, you know, it's going to make an impact. The more we talk about it, the more 
we share, um, it is going to be known that this is our story. And Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that people will take a listen and um, they will support whether you're documented, uh, whether you don't have DACA yourself, or you don't even have any of our worries about whether we're going to stay in the country or not because you were born here. Reach out and support, you know, reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you or hey, I know you're feeling this way. We can talk about it. Um, I call my friends all the time to check in and just say, are you okay? I'm okay. How are you doing? You know, just do that. And I'm sure that having someone to be there for you is definitely going to make a difference getting through these next upcoming updates on the DACA program. So with that, I definitely want to thank you so much for being on this episode. I want to thank you for your time and sharing your story. Again, it's crazy how small this world could be and how relatable you can feel once you're able to share. And and now that you've listened to so many of our episodes, you get to have your own episode and many people get to share in and hopefully, like I said, feel inspired by you. So thank you so much. Any parting words that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I I feel so honored and blessed to have had this opportunity to chat with you and connect with you. Um, I am so proud of everybody in our community. I think we have taken a very tough and even traumatic, you know, experience uh, of our entire lives, basically, and done the best we can be. I mean, I'm so inspired by so many people that I've met under DACA or who are currently undocumented. And I wish that everybody in the world could see it, but I am so happy that you have this platform where you get to share our stories with various corners of the world in Spotify and other listening medias. So thank you, Sandra, for this podcast and for the opportunity. You really are making a big impact in our community and in our space. Thank you. And it only works when people like you're willing to share and People listen, and the more we grow this podcast, this is our space. This is where we take control of sharing who we are and what all of this means for the for us and how this affects us and hoping that one day it can be better and different for all of us. So thank you so much um, to everybody listening. Stay tuned for the next upcoming episode. Wishing you the best of luck as we get through the summer with this heat because, girl, it's going to be a hot girl summer for sure in Houston. It, I can already imagine. If you don't mind um, sharing your social media, I would love to see some of your art drawings, uh, pictures that are related to the episode, you know, things that tie the story together. We can share this on social media. Uh, so you can find it on the Prickly Things podcast on Instagram. And um, yeah, if you guys feel like you want to share your story, be part of the show, please reach out to me. Um, the email is the same, the prickly things podcast at gmail.com. And with that, thank you so much. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.